Hello, and welcome to the Identity Paradox Inside the Racial Pharmacon, a podcast examining anti-racist theories and practices aimed at dismantling destructive identitarian politics and ideologies, both in the U.S. and abroad. Please note that discussions deal with very difficult subject matter, so every episode comes with a general content warning. And I'm your host, Carlos Gallego, Associate Professor of English, as well as both Distinguished Teaching Professor in the Humanities here at St. Olaf College. This podcast is part of the programming brought to you by the Bolt Chair Endowment. So special thanks to the Bolt family for making this programming possible. If you enjoyed today's podcast, make sure to subscribe for future episodes. And now, the show. Hello and welcome to the introductory, though technically second, episode of the Identity Paradox inside the Racial Pharmacon. I'm your host, Carlos Gallego, he, him. Associate Professor of English at St. Olaf College. Uh, I think the intro takes care of that. And with me today is Rob Kendrick, Associate Professor and Co-Chair of the English Department at Gustavus Adolphus College, also here in Minnesota. Welcome, fellow Southwesterner. Thank you for joining us today. How are you doing besides warmish? Oh, I think that's pretty much it. The heat predominates today, but I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Um, So take it away. Thank you. you That's that's so kind. It's always always uh, encouraging to have friends slash colleagues look forward to you embarrassing yourself uh, in a public forum. There's (laughs) nothing quite like I wouldn't have agreed to do it if I thought you were going to embarrass yourself. Oh, that's sweet. That's I appreciate (laughs) that. Don't believe him, audience. And those who know Rob, you know that he has another side to his humor. I'm just joking. He's an incredibly kind person. That's why I asked him to be here today. Uh, it does feel like back home, right, right Rob? I mean, you're, we're both from the Southwest. Oh, multiply this by like 52. Yeah, yeah but, <laughs> it's but, exactly like home. But the thing yeah. is that we don't get polar vortexes down there. I know in Texas, you guys freeze to death, but not in Arizona. Like we have functional utilities. So uh, polar vortex plus like 100 degree weather with the heat index. Like this is not cool. This, I mean, and I don't mean that in like in a temperature style. I mean like in a hipster way. This is not cool. Like this is, this not shall livable. not stand. It can't yeah. stand. It's the extremes are, ooh, sirens. How ironically weird. <laughs> I never hear sirens in, in Minneapolis. Minneapolis right? yeah, Imagine. Especially yeah. during the summers. The last two summers only, have been so quiet. It's only four in the afternoon. Yep. Yeah. We haven't even started. All right. And the Yankees are in town. That's way too, you obviously suffer from tangentialitis like Adrian and I do. Um, so today's episode is dedicated to a proper podcast introduction where I, as your host, and I apologize for that, will attempt to explain the main concepts utilized in both the title to this podcast and the different approaches that will be, or that will utilize to explore issues of race, racism, and anti-racism, along with all their peripherally associated and at times not so peripheral sociopolitical cousins class, gender, sexual orientation, planetary situatedness, and the various other branches in modernity's family tree of discontent, to paraphrase good old Siggy Freud. So let's begin with the first part of today's uh, show or title. Uh, This is a show, right, Rob? I feel like it's weird calling it a show because a show entails some kind of entertainment, but you are here to provide that. So just know that there's no pressure if it's not entertaining, but that is your role today. I just, <laughs> but if it's not entertaining, I have failed. All right, good yeah, to know. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> know your place. Anywho, uh, today we'll be discussing what exactly is meant by the idea of an identity paradox. Ironically, and I say that 
only because this is a podcast dedicated to anti-racist theory and praxis. A lot of the focus today will be on theories put forth by a bunch of famous dead European white men, including household names like Kant, Hegel, Husserl, Heidegger, Sartre, Lacan, and Badu, the latter being the only one still alive, to my knowledge. Now, I put white in quotes because, as we'll see, the whiteness of some of these European intellectuals will seriously be questioned by uh, some pretty uh, unforgiving and uh, less than inclusive political parties in Europe. All that being said, uh, sorry, I skipped ahead here a little bit. Uh, however, in terms of all the names that I just listed, the two main figures we'll be talking about today are Theodore Adorno and Jacques Derrida, who I'll introduce later, as I will the aforementioned names uh, for our listeners who may not be familiar with this philosophical tradition or with philosophy in general. We're a pedagogically friendly podcast in that regard, so we'll try and explain our terms and our references as often as possible. Uh, we're going to miss some here and there, but I tried to make up for that in the show notes. So please make sure to check those out either at the website uh, at theidentityparadox.com or on SoundCloud. Um, so all that being said, let's start with one of the edge guys, as my former professor and colleague, Linda Zwinger from the University of Arizona used to call them, and that's Horkheimer, Hegel, Heidegger, Husserl. And the edge thing is my fault because I would bring them up all the time and I shut up about them in a class on psychoanalysis, actually a seminar on psychoanalysis in Lacan. So after a while, she's like, yeah, the edge guys that Carlos keeps talking about, what have you. Uh, so I own that, Linda. Let's begin with the letter, to paraphrase the beginning of Derrida's essay on difference. I just wanted to be a little bit pretentious. Not that little is the appropriate word here. but uh, So let's begin with a letter, to paraphrase the beginning of Derrida's essay on difference. But let's begin in reverse alphabetical order, at least in terms of the H guys, with a quote from the father of modern phenomenology, Edmund Husserl. Now, it's worth mentioning that phenomenology was already big during the Enlightenment, as noted in the title of one of George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel's fa uh, most famous texts, it's not the most famous text of Hegel's, which is the Phenomenology of Spirit, published in 1807, where Hegel famously articulates his theory of how spirit, what can be understood as mind or reason, develops through history. Uh, partic particularly dialectical tensions between masters and slaves or modern nation states, eventually giving rise to absolute, absolute knowledge. Now, this is obviously an extreme oversimplification of Hegel's theory, but I think it sufficiently kind of covers uh, Hegel's role in this story without getting caught in the philosophical quagmire of Hegel's system and all the debates around it, whether or not we reach the end of history, whether or not the phenomenology of spirit is supposed to be a precursor to philosophy in general, or whether it represents philosophy in praxis. I mean, these are all debates that we're not getting into, but I just wanted to give a shout out to a few of them. Um, the other philosopher known for theorizing phenomenological questions is the father of modern philosophy himself, Immanuel Kant. And I say father if you believe in such paternalistic titles, which apparently I do since I've been using them, so you can uh, totally criticize me on the comments for the three faithful listeners that we've accumulated thus far on this podcast. Anyway, that's a joke. Kant is well known for theorizing the distinction between things as they appear to us, phenomena, so appearance, and things as they are, the thingness of things, right, the noumena. So phenomena inform our understanding of the world, 
our experiences, that's how we understand our existence is through the ways things appear to us in terms of understanding, in terms of consciousness, while noumena constitute the reality or the presumed reality that exists apart from consciousness. And I say presumed because, again, that's one of the debates of whether or not human consciousness can ever actually get to understand the totality of the thingness of the thing itself, right? So not being Kantians or Hegelians, at least not me, I can't speak for Rob. Are you a Kantian or a Hegelian, Rob? I don't think I'm either, actually, right? Yeah. Oh, okay, sorry. Uh, I think we lost your mic a little bit, if you could just lower it a tad. Thank you. Is that sir. better? Yeah, it's a lot better. Okay. Uh, so uh, just for the record, you are neither a Kantian or Hegelian, but you're confused. Yeah, I okay. am, right? Because Fair. I'm I'm uh, taken aback again by Hegel's um impulse towards this absolute knowledge, right? Which we know is bullshit, right? Um but he's useful to understand the history of philosophy, so yeah. lead on. Absolutely. I I agree with both those points. I think they're very useful, but I wouldn't necessarily call myself an apostle of either. Um so not being apostles, we're not going to dive into Kant or Hegel theories, so we might come back to these famous and very racist. And I want to pause here and say that I will back up that claim of Kant and Hegel being racist right now if I have to. I don't think I do, but I will. And I have quotes from their works that highlight the deep racism that informs their philosophies, even in the context of when they're talking about ethics and morality. I mean, like Hegel famously talks about the immorality of slavery, but how it's necessary in order to educate Africans, for example, in the philosophy of history. So that stuff's out there. I'm not just saying that to throw shade. I don't at think you're going out on a shaky limb to claim that an right. 18th, 19th century European guy was a racist, right? You'd, yeah. you'd be surprised at the debates that emerge. Mm -hmm. Anyway, and I know you know. So, uh, so uh, I just want to say that there is some racism involved in these two figures. That's the irony of focusing on some of these during an anti-racist podcast, but sometimes you have to address racism in order to address anti-racism or to uh, theorize anti-racism, right? So uh, we will come back probably to some of these uh, historical figures, especially Hegel, who uh, Adrian Merritt apparently dislikes, as she admitted in her first episode. And to be fair, a lot of people dislike Hegel for various reasons, so uh, she's not alone in that regard. Uh, anyway, uh, Kant and Hegel preceded the more recognizable hero of phenomenology, Husserl, and I just thought it was intellectually responsible to note that, especially since we'll be coming back to these two, Kant and Hegel, in the form of scathing critiques from both Adorno and Derrida. So I know you're asking, why start with phenomenology? You're probably asking yourself that right now, right, Rob? I am. What, yeah. what is your justification for starting with phenomenology and not with, say, Plato or Aristotle? Absolutely. That's a great question. We're, and by the way, we didn't script this dialogue, so we're just kind of riffing. Um, anyway, uh, great question, and I'm about to try to answer it. Because this gets at the first part of the podcast title, the identity paradox part. We'll bring in your friends Plato and et al uh, for the second part on the pharmacon. But for now, we're just going to hang out here with the concept of identity and paradox. Uh, and we'll see why phenomenology is uh, relevant. One of, the modern, one of modern philosophy's primary quests has been to interrogate the possibility of reconciling subject and object, the self and reality, the appearance or representation of a thing and the thing itself. This in many ways encompasses the problem of identity in general. Now, 
this thesis of reconciliation between subject and object or consciousness and thing was and continues to be the object, no pun intended, of several debates in philosophy. That's where modern phenomenology and Husserl come in. Now, I'm going to read from Professor Christian Beyer's entry on Husserl in the Stanford Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which I highly recommend as a resource if you're ever curious about any philosophical figure or philosophical movement. Rather than go to Wikipedia, you may want to start with Wikipedia, but you definitely want to switch over to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And for only $25 a year, and this is not a plug, I don't get any money, for only $25 a year, you become a friend of the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and you get to download as many PDFs as you want on any philosopher you want. Highly recommend it. It's a lot better than cutting and pasting into Word and then transitioning into PDFs. Like the 25 <laughs> bucks is worth the money. All right, so now I'm reading from uh, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, specifically a uh, Professor Christian Byers entry. And I believe these entries are peer reviewed too, by the way. So know that these people know what they're talking about. Husserl was born in Aprosnitz, uh, I think it's uh, Moravia, the region of, on April 8th, 1859. His parents were non-Orthodox Jews. That will be important. Husserl himself and his wife would later convert to Protestantism, also important. They had three children, one of whom died in World War I, crucially important. In the years 1876 to 1878, Husserl studied astronomy in Leipzig, where he also attended courses of lectures in mathematics, physics, and philosophy. Among other things, he heard uh, Wilhelm Wundt's lectures on philosophy, and Wundt uh, was the originator of the first Institute for Experimental Psychology, crucially important. Husserl's mentor was Thomas uh, Musarek, uh, I believe I pronounced that correctly, uh, a former student of Brentano's, who was later to become the first president of Czechoslovakia. So I just want to highlight the kind of world in which Husserl was circulating at the early part of his career and the middle parts of his career. He was a very respected intellectual uh, in this part of the world, and his influence was spreading across Europe. In 1878 uh, through uh, 1780, uh, 1878 to 1881, excuse me, continued his studies in mathematics, physics, and philosophy in Berlin. And I just want to, I wanted to say all of that to highlight the fact that Husserl's philosophy is grounded in a scientific ethos. He is not part of this continental versus analytic philosophy rift that's taking place today, for example, uh, and started, I would say, back in the 18th century, simply because Husserl is in many ways a bridge between these two. There is no continental philosophy yet. Husserl will become one of the doors that opens uh, up the world to people like Heidegger and Sartre and other people that are more uh, affiliated with continental philosophy. Husserl grounded his philosophy in uh, the, the scientific uh world or the scientific side of the philosophical divide so and could just... you update me professor gallego on the current <laughs> debates between analytic and continental philosophy uh well one way i could quickly do that professor kendrick is to say that in continental philosophy there are questions that are more along the lines of something like existentialism which in the world of analytic philosophy are not necessarily uh shall we say recognized as philosophical uh, questions they're more psychological or anthropological type questions, sociological even.
relevant. And uh, for the analytic side of philosophy, it's more along the lines of logic. Uh, and if you're going to talk about consciousness, you talk about consciousness in the way that, for example, Kant talked about consciousness. Consciousness in terms of how does it emerge? How does it relate to things in the world? How does it understand time, et cetera, which makes, you know, Heidegger, one of the H guys, a very interesting figure in that regard because he he also was like Husserl. He was trying to be scientific, but he definitely, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a sec because Husserl and Heidegger have a history to say the least. So, but again, all that background, just to ground it in the scientific ethos that Husserl is working within. So did I do a decent job there, Professor Kendrick? Of just I think so, that helps me. Yeah. Great, awesome. So we're just gonna jump ahead here in terms of Husserl's life. Uh, he, I'm just paraphrasing here. He, uh, he gets his PhD in mathematics, uh, but his first published monograph philosophy of arithmetic was criticized as founded on psychologism and this kind of stuck with Husserl like this critique hurt and he respected it so um psychologism as a critique was something that Husserl took very seriously as a philosopher grounded in a scientific ethos, which I think goes back and explains the fact that he was influenced early on in his career by Wilhelm Wundt, who would later uh uh, you know, create the first Institute for Experimental Psychology, I think we see that influence there. And it's something that I guess if you're writing a dissertation or your first monograph is about math, uh, being accused of psychologizing your mathematical uh, thesis is probably a bad thing, right? So he turned to philosophy instead and founded what he would become famous for, phenomenology. So back to Professor Bayer and the Stanford Encyclopedia. Husserl stayed in Göttingen until 1916. It is here that he made his most important philosophical discoveries, such as the transcendental phenomenological method, the phenom phenomenological structure of time consciousness, the fundamental role of the notion of intersubjectivity in our conceptual system, the horizon structure of our singular empirical thought, and more. And I love the fact that Professor Breyer states all that stuff and then just follows it up with, and more, as if... Transcendental phenomenological method, phenomenological structure of time consciousness, the fundamental role of the notion of intersubjectivity in our conceptual system, and the horizon structure of our singular empirical thought is not enough. There's more in case you're interested. So again, Husserl, kind of prolific, I would say. In later works, most notably in On the Phenomenology of the Consciousness of Internal Time, 1928, Formal and Transcendental Logic, 1929, Cartesian Meditations, 1931, The Crisis of European Sciences and Transcendental Phenomenology, Phenomenology, which is a series of lectures that were later published that started in 1935 and I think were eventually published in 1954, and that was his last major publication, uh, and Experience and Judgment, which was published in 1939. All these later works, uh, the, res the results of which were developed further and put into new contexts, such as the path-breaking project of linking the basic notions of science back to their conceptual roots in the pre-scientific regions of the life world. And that is from uh, the crisis of European sciences and transcendental phenomenology. So it seems that Husserl, towards the end of his life, was taking the risk of Tying, tying science back into a kind of pre-scientific life world. And that reminds me a lot of the kind of stuff that uh, like Foucault would end up doing and some of the Habermas and you know later philosophers that would take on this concept of the life world, especially put it in relationship to the evolution of sciences. So 
I think that uh, speaks again to the diversity of uh, Husserl's intellectual uh, might here. Uh, Husserl retired in 1928, his successor being his former assistant, Martin Heidegger. And this is where things start to get interesting. Husserl, by this point, had uh, problems with Heidegger simply because Heidegger um, was taking over his position, knowing that Husserl was retiring under kind of not ideal conditions. And Heidegger not only ended up taking his position um, at the university, he, uh, he published his most famous work, Being in Time, in Husserl's publication yearbook. So Husserl was not only kind of a mentor to Heidegger, Heidegger dedicated being in time to Husserl, except for the 1941 Nazi edition, because you know you can't dedicate your book to someone who has Jewish ancestry, so you bury the dedication in the footnotes. Fact check that. So um, Heidegger and Husserl are gonna have a big rift, and that comes out eventually uh, by 1931. So in 1929, Husserl accepts an invitation to Paris, right? There's a reason he's starting to see, like, I might want to leave Germany. Um, his lectures there were published as Cartesian Meditations in 1931. In the same year, Husserl gave a number of talks on phenomenology and anthropology. And remember, for Husserl, this is a bad combination. Phenomenology and science, good. Phenomenolo phenomenology and philosophy, fine. Phenomenology and anthropology, bad. And that's what he accused Heidegger of doing, right? So in these uh, lectures, he criticizes two antipodes, Heidegger and Max Scheller. And I love the word antipode, right? It's like a, such a scientifically polite way of calling someone a nemesis or your arch enemy, intellectually speaking. And the reason why is because Husserl made a strong statement against the rise of Nazism in Germany and said that germ history will judge the good Germans from the Germans that were passive and or participated in this uprising, as opposed to Heidegger, who would become a Nazi and eventually the official philosopher of the Nazi party. So in 1933, Hitler took over in Germany. Husserl received a call to Los Angeles, but rejected it. Husserl didn't leave. Because of his Jewish ancestors, he became more and more humiliated and isolated. And this is a sad part of his whole story. Incredibly uh, gifted, intelligent, up-and-comer early on in his life, Nazis come into power, he suddenly becomes irrelevant to the point of humiliation and isolation. This goes to show what party politics a la Nazis get you in terms of the intellectual gifts that some of us have, not some of us, but some people have to offer the world and Husserl being one of those. So in 1935, he gave a series of invited lectures in Prague, resulting in his last major work, The Crisis of European Sciences and Transcendental Phenomenology. And again, all that information I'm borrowing, paraphrasing, quoting from uh, Professor Christian Beyer from the uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. So major, major respect and props to uh, Professor Beyer. So the reason that back to your question, Professor Kendrick, uh, the reason why I started with phenomenology is because in the crisis of European sciences, sciences and transcendental phenomenology, phenomenology, Husserl makes a very interesting argument around the concept of the self. And he says that the concept of the self engenders a paradox. And remember, he's saying this towards the end of his life. And he says, quote, the paradox of human subjectivity basically is that we have a, we are both a being we're being a subject for the world. And at the same time, we're being an object 
in the world. So our subjectivity is our kind of interiority, our private set, sense of self that we all have. And at the same time, while you are this private self, you are also an object in the world for other people to judge, evaluate, avoid, embrace, etc. And Husserl never reconciled that tension. He, he didn't want to because the only way to do it was easily and lazily and that was not his style having grounded in that scientific ethos so he said that human subjectivity is essentially in and of itself a paradox human selfhood is a paradox we cannot reconcile the fact that we are a, a subject and an object at the same time and we all have moments you know this is the cartesian mind-body dichotomy right whereas you your headache is potentially a stress headache so your mind causes your brain to hurt well, how do you separate the mind from the brain? Good question that I'm not going to even bother with. So this idea of paradox, particularly the tension between object and subject, appears as a central theme in the work of Theodore Adorno, one of the founding members of the Frankfurt School. And here I'm going to transition to Adorno, but Husserl will stay in the background. So here I'm quoting uh, from Professor Lambert Siderfrat's entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And I hope I did some justice to uh, that last name, uh, Professor Lambert's uh, last name. Uh, I think it is Siderfrat. I checked it like four times. Born on September 11th, 1903, as Theodor Ludwig Weisengren, something I didn't know. He was not Adorno until later, and we'll find out why. Again, same people, same stuff. Adorno lived in Frankfurt for the first three decades of his life and the last two. So Adorno died at the age of 66, a little right, right before 66. For 50 years, he lived in the same city. He's so Kantian of him. Like, I don't leave my town and people set their watch to the, to the walks I take around the little village. Um, he was the only son of a wealthy German wine merchant, very important, of assimilated Jewish background, very important, and an accomplished musician of Corsican Catholic descent, also very important. Adorno studied philosophy with Neo-Kantian Hans Cornelius and music composition with Alban Berg. So Adorno had a bougie background while his friends, like Husserl's son, are dying in World War I. Adorno's going out for walks, talking music and talking Kant. Isn't that nice? And I think that explains a lot of his kind of personality later on in life and uh, compared to people like Walter Benjamin or any French philosopher of his, uh, of his time. Um, he completed his, I'm not even going to try. Can you speak German? No. Okay, so dissertation. He completed his dissertation <laughs> on Kierkegaard's aesthetics in 1931 under the supervision of the Christian socialist Paul Tillich. Uh, after two years as a university instructor, he was expelled by the Nazis, along with other professors of Jewish heritage or on the political left. Because if you know anything about the Nazis, you know that, you know, obviously there was the, the quote unquote, the Jewish problem that the Nazis supposedly were going to find a quote unquote final solution to. But not everyone in those camps were Jewish. Some of them were just communists. Some of them were anarchists. Some of them were just uh, Germans who were not down with Nazism, et cetera. You'd be surprised how many people fitted this general concept of, quote, Jew, uh, as far as the Nazis were concerned. Um, a few years later, he turned his father's surname into a middle initial. So that's where we get the Theodore W. Adorno from. Uh, and adopted Adorno, the maternal surname by which he is best known. So he literally changed his name in the face of Nazism to avoid 
persecution. Uh, and he also left Germany uh, in the spring of 1934. So uh, he was not going to stick around. During the Nazi era, he resided in Oxford, New York City, and Southern California. And this is where uh, I think Adorno and Horkheimer and others started a new school for social research in New York City. Um, in those places, he wrote several books for which he later became famous, including Dialectic of Enlightenment with Max Horkheimer, Philosophy of New Music, there we see the maternal influence, The Authoritarian Personality, which I highly recommend for anyone who's interested in fascism and what's happening right now all over the world in terms of the rise of populism, The Authoritarian, the authoritarian Personality, which is a collaborative project. Adorno was the quote-unquote sociologist, critical theorist on that team, but the rest of the team consists of, of psychologists, uh, medical doctors, etc., and it's literally a very uh, long, long study on essentially what the title highlights, the authoritarian personality, what constitutes it, what makes it up, et cetera, and how can something like totalitarianism come about in the first place. Uh, and the final book listed here is Minima Moralia, which is kind of like an autobiography. I think the subtitle is of uh, writings from a fragmented life or something like that. Um, from these years uh, come his provocative critiques of mass culture and the culture industry. Returning to Frankfurt in 1949 to take up the position in the philosophy department, Adorno quickly established himself as a leading German intellectual and a central figure in the Institute of Social Research. Founded as a freestanding center for Marxist scholarship in 1923, pre-Nazi, uh, the Institute had been led by Max Horkheimer since 1930. It provided the hub to what was come to be known as the Frankfurt School. So that's where the name comes from. Adorno's, Adorno became the Institute's director in 1958. From the 1950s stamp, on other books, such as In Search of Wagner, uh, Adorno's ideology critique of the Nazi's favorite composer. I love that little kind of shade that uh, <laughs> that uh, Professor Asilo Frat throws in there. Just, uh, just, so, just so you know, In Search of Wagner is a critique of the Nazi's favorite composer. Prisms, a collection of social and cultural studies against epistemolo epistemology and anti-foundationalist critique of Husserlian, there he is, phenomenology and the first volume of Notes to Literature, a collection of essays and literary criticism. Conflict and consolidation marked the last decade of Adorno's life. A leading figure in the positivism dispute in German sociology, Adorno was a key player in debates about restructuring German universities and a lightning rod for both student activists and their right-wing critics. So Adorno was hated by both the right and the left at this time. Uh, the right hated him because he was obviously a critic of right-wing ideology and uh, politics, but left-wing left student activists also disliked him because they thought he was too bougie and way, way too constrained in his idea of political praxis. And I, there's this famous story of Adorno calling the cops on his, on his own students before they demonstrated in order, because he kept warning them, like, you're going to get killed out there. They're going to kill you. They're going to hurt you. And out of that concern for his students, he essentially, quote, protected them from themselves. And thus the criticism started just reigning in and from the left in terms of this supposed Marxist professor, right? And when you look at his life history, it's difficult not to call him like a, a, a bourgeois Marxist when it comes to praxis. Intellectually, he is hardcore, that I must say. So these controversies did not prevent him from publishing numerous volumes of music criticism, two more volumes of notes to literature. And by the way, as a literary scholar and uh, 
Rob is one too. And those two literature is just genius. There's the essays in there are fantastic. He has one on the epic. He has one on Beckett. I mean, there are so many great essays in there that cover a variety of genres and a variety of periods, variety of styles. I highly recommend it to anyone interested in literature. Uh, as well as books on Hegel and on existential philosophy and collected essays in sociology and in aesthetics. Negative Dialectics, that's my favorite book. Adorno's Magnus Opus on Epistemology and Metaphysics appeared in 1966. Aesthetic Theory, the other Magnus Opus on which he had worked throughout the 1960s, appeared posthumously in 1970. He died of a heart attack on August 6, 1969, one month shy of his 66th birthday. Right. I have tried to make my way through aesthetic theory. Have you actually yeah. finished it, Gallego? No, finishing okay. aesthetic theory is like finishing any of Nietzsche's books. It's like it's so full <laughs> yeah. of aphorisms that it's just, exactly. I like this one. And then okay. it's going to be repeated five pages later in a different yeah. way or just elaborated on. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. If sort that's... of like the Finnegan's Wake of theory. Oh, I, I've been reading Adorno. Uh, Lacan, I've been reading so much about people who are influenced by James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. It is ridiculous how many hardcore intellectuals are reading James Joyce at the same time that they're putting forth some of their more radical theories out there. It's really, really interesting. And I'm talking about here, Lacan and Adorno, two of the most difficult, I think, theorists to understand. And Derrida, too, another one that was reading Finnegan's Wake uh, while he was working on some really hardcore stuff. So, uh, so yeah, I to answer your question, no. And I don't think <laughs> that you have to read it from one from yeah. book end to book end, right? So, uh, as Simon Jarvis demonstrates, negative dialectics tries to formulate a philosophical materialism that is historical and critical, but not dogmatic. Alternatively, one can describe the book as a meta-critique of idealist philosophy, especially of the philosophy of Kant and Hegel. There they are. Adorno says the book aims to complete what he considered his lifelong task as a philosopher, quote, to use the strength of the subject to break through the deception of the constant of constitutive subjectivity. And that's all shade on Kant, because the idea of constitutive subjectivity, I think, emerges from Kant. Um, and uh, yeah, modern philosophers thereafter just went after that idea of like a self-constituting subjectivity, this, the self-sameness of identity, etc. Like Hegel, Adorno criticizes Kant's distinction between phenomena and noumena by arguing that the transcendental conditions of experience can be neither so pure nor so separate from each other as Kant seems to claim. As concepts, for example, the a priori categories of the faculty of understanding would be unintelligible if they were not already about something that is non-conceptual. And again, we're getting back to the tensions between understanding or consciousness and the thingness of our existence. Conversely, the supposedly pure forms of space and time cannot simply be non-conceptual intuitions. So the argument, see here that, you know, Kant famously uh, said space and time are a priori and what they're you know, theorizing here is that you cannot have space and time simply exist as a priori without their, they, they're not being non-conceptual by simply being non-conceptual intuitions. In other words, like we have to experience and think our way through this stuff. And it's not just kind of like makes sense for uh, some kind of programmatic reason. Although Chomsky would challenge that just in terms of syntax, right? And that our brains do have the capacity to 
function like computers, but whether or not the software is already existing uh, is the debate, I guess, software versus hardware. Uh, back to Stanford Encyclopedia. Not even a transcendental philosopher would have access to the to them, them being uh, space-time and non-conceptual intuitions, apart from concepts about them. So too, what makes possible any genuine experience cannot simply be the application of a priori concepts to a priori intuitions via the schematism of the imagination. And here we see kind of like a very kind of walnut, very uh, nutshell, sorry, walnut, a very nutshell version of summarizing Kant, but I think it gets to many of the central uh, themes in Kant's philosophy, especially regarding the application of a priori concepts to a priori intuitions, and how they could combine into the schematism of the imagination, etc. And this is how consciousness arises for uh, philosophers like Kant. And people take that to task because they highlight the role of experience. Like genuine experience is made possible by that which exceeds the grasp of thought and sensibility. Adorno does not call this excess the thing itself, however, for that would assume the Kantian framework we criticize is, although someone like Lacan would later use that very term, das Ding, because, you know, that's the thingness in and of itself that we can never come to know uh, in its complete full uh, truth, right? In its completeness, in its totality. Rather, Adorno calls it the non-identical. And this is the part of the identity paradox that I think uh, is, is more important. The concept of the non-identical in turn marks the difference between Adorno's materialism and Hegel's idealism. They're both critical of Kant, but then Adorno becomes critical of Hegel's idealistic way of reconciling the tension between uh, mind and, 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 or let's just say between subject and object. Although he shares Hegel's emphasis on the speculative identity between thought and being, between subject and object, and between reason and reality, Adorno denies that this identity has been achieved in a positive fashion, and that's the key critique, right? For Kant, they remain irreconcilable outside of like some kind of transcendentalism. It's kind of the same thing for Hegel, but Hegel reunites them. Uh, and Adorno criticizes the way in which Hegel reunites them, which is through idealism. For the most part, this identity has occurred negatively instead, according to Adorno. That is to say, human thought in achieving identity and unity has imposed these upon objects, suppressing or ignoring their differences and diversity, which is what Kant would balk at. He says Kant, Kant would not do that. Such an imposition is driven by a societal formation whose exchange principle demands the equivalence, exchange value, of what is inherently non-equivalent use value. So basically, Adorno argues we are exchanging our understanding of these things and imposing them and using that imposition as the value itself so we can exchange it with others. This is how language, for example, emerges. And we need to understand that that is not the truth of the thing itself, right? There's a difference. And you can see the kind of Marxism informing Adorno's philosophy here because he's using Marxist theories of exchange value and use value to talk about the um, tension between subject and object. Um, so whereas Hegel's speculative identity amounts to an identity between identity and non-identity, Adorno's amounts to a non-identity between identity and non-identity. I mean, to paraphrase this, and I think I'm paraphrasing this correctly, Hegel's speculative identity amounts to an identity between subject and object. Adorno's amounts to non-identity between subject and object. That is why Adorno calls for a negative dialectic and why he rejects the affirmative character of Hegel's dialectic. 
Almost done here with the Stanford Encyclopedia listeners, hang in there. Adorno does not reject the necessity of conceptual identification, however, nor does his philosophy claim to have direct access to the non-identical, right? He's not gonna claim truth. That's one of the last things that Adorno would claim. Under current societal conditions, thought can only have access to the non-identical via conceptual criticisms of false identification. So this is where the kind of Marxist tradition of critique comes into play for Adorno. The only way we can achieve this, uh, this, this conceptual identification, if you will, is through critique itself. It's through criticisms of false identifications with this kind of idea of totality or reconciliation. Such criticisms must be determinate negations, pointing up specific contradiction, contradictions between what thought claims and what it actually delivers. Through determinate negation, those aspects of the object which thought misidentifies receive an indirect conceptual articulation. So for those of you who are uh, you know, well-versed in post-structuralism, you can start to see the kind of post-structuralist elements of Adorno's uh, thinking kind of, kind of popping up here, even though he's rarely affiliated with post-structuralist thinkers simply because he remains true to a kind of Marxist foundational understanding of critique. Uh, the motivation for Adorno's negative dialectic is not simply conceptual, however, nor are its intellectual resources. His epistemology is materialist, and there again, the Marxist part, in both regards. It is motivated, he says, by undeniable human suffering, a fact of unreason, if you will, to counter Kant's fact of reason. Suffering is a corporal imprint of society and the object upon human consciousness. And this is a quote. The need to let suffering speak is a condition of all truth. For suffering is objectivity that weighs upon the subject. I, th I just find that quote to be beautiful because it really, and another one of, I think it's a minimum moralia, another one of Adorno's uh, quotes that I, famous quotes that I really love is, life does not live. And what Adorno is doing here, retroactively looking upon his life to say like, look, our society is really messed up. It has objectified everything to the point that our thinking itself is objectified. And the only way to break out of this is to use our capacity to think against this imposition of ideologies, of languages, of labels, of terms. It's to counter the identity that is imposed upon us to the point of engaging in a non-identity way of thinking and being in the world. So that's a fair summary there, Rob. That's outstanding. And I'm just uh, struck, um, gobsmacked actually by how relevant Adorno's ideas are to our current cultural moment in the United States, right? And across the globe, right? I mean, this first sentence here, the need to let suffering speak is a condition of all truth. It's like, that is our challenge right now, right? We're trying to let as much suffering speak, right? And our reference here are actual human beings, right? Who are doing the suffering. Um, and again, we have this neoliberal order that Adorno was definitely against, despite his bourgeois background, right? Um, where it's like, this is the challenge of our day, right? And this is the reason your podcast is so important, right? And right, promoting suffering speech, right? Um, ah, yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you for that. I didn't, didn't uh, expect that very kind plug at the end. But uh, yeah, I completely agree with you in terms of uh, letting suffering speak. And what I'm struck by, because I completely I agree with everything you just said, 
on the flip side of that, it's interesting to note when suffering is not allowed to speak, right, Rob? When suffering mm -hmm. is censored from even saying that it's suffering. And we see that in places well, like know. Palestine. We see that in places like the border. We see that in places like, you know, 38th and Chicago. <laughs> or the recent political assassination of Winston Smith, right? Um, um, exactly. The fact that this is not showing up nationally and internationally, right? Um is really problematic, right? Because his suffering rate is being completely erased and silenced, right? And so Absolutely. this again is the challenge of our day, right? To let his voice be heard, right? And to change things. Anyway, and, I'll and to quiet. let his voice, no, no, please don't. And to let his voice be heard authentically, because yep. if you notice, uh, the Star Trib had him up there as a murder suspect for five days before exactly. they corrected oh it, God. right? And it's like yeah. five days is, you know what you're doing when you let that slide. Like as a journalist, that is so unprofessional. It's borderline unethical and grotesque. Well, so, it's racist. Yeah. 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 And it's a framing, right? It's, it's a way to control the suffering of the subject not being articulated, not being heard, not allowing the suffering to speak for itself. So and you intended that pun of framing too, right? That the right Minneapolis's major right news organ, right, is helping the right militarized police do this work, right? This racist work that they are involved in. And that's the totality that Adorno was always attacking. Because mm -hmm. one of the famous things that he said is like, look, capitalism is a totalizing system that requires a totalizing critique. So even if the critique and its totalizing manner it falls short, and we know it will, we need to understand the totality of all, all this is connected. And what we just finished articulating that like three minute riff is connecting a lot of the dots about how the police are connected to certain community action groups that are connected to certain, uh, you know, political parties and individuals which are connected to certain business interests, which, and that's the totality that Adorno is trying to highlight because for him, that's where the suffering comes from. It's that objectification of the world, dehumanization, if you will. So, all right. So these last comments that we just quoted on the role of suffering uh, in the formation of subjectivity is something I find incredibly powerful and true. Suffering is a corporal imprint of society and the object upon human consciousness. This is very close to what Althusser, a uh, famous French uh, Marxist theorist, will say about ideological interpolation and what Jacques Lacan, the famous French psychoanalyst, will theorize in terms of the castration necessary to enter the social symbolic, right? Althusser actually refers to all this as, quote, surviving the process of socialization. <laughs> You literally survive <laughs> yeah. being socialized. Like when, as soon as they start to tell you, use your words, it's like, you're going to have to survive this part, kid. You're going to have to get through it. And you're going to have to learn language. So for me- And of course, we're trying to remember those who cannot survive this process of socialization. Exactly. Too, right? Yeah. Yep. That's a very important, or who are not allowed to survive it because they're threatening, right? To that yep. society they're being indoctrinated or interpolated into. Uh, so for me personally, Adorno is the philosopher that really takes in a full fledged critique uh, of identity and identity thinking, especially in the ways it informs our sense of self. Uh, he is the identity paradox philosopher in my mind. So I wanted to put him in conversation, obviously, with the person we shouldn't forget about here, which is Husserl, uh, who was all too often forgotten during these later years due to those damn Nazis. So here's a quote connecting Adorno to Husserl in a non-critical manner. Quote, if Adorno himself believes that there is a certain affinity between his critical endeavors and phenomenology that goes beyond an initial general interest in concrete phenomena, it is due to the fact that the object, the objective of investigating, quote, the things themselves, famous Husserl quote, 
forced Husserl to break out of the confines of idealism, i.e. Hegel, and to ultimately develop ideas laden with subversively fruitful self-criticism. And it's this last part that will become extremely important because Husserl's subversively fruitful self-criticism is what I think opened the doors to people like Heidegger and people like uh, Adorno and the Frankfurt School and other people like, you know, like Sartre and other people that would engage with Husserl's writings from a non-analytical philosophical traditional standpoint. So, and that quote, by the way, is from Amelia Trepak's uh, essay, uh, The Utopia of Eidetic, Eidetic Intuition, uh, Phenomenological Motif in Adorno. And, and by the way, I checked out that essay, uh, so I'm not even going to try to explain Amalia Trepak's uh, thesis. It's extremely complicated, but very, very interesting. So if uh, you're interested in what we're talking about, I highly recommend uh, checking out that essay. Uh, I think she does a, a great job of putting those two in conversation. Uh, so hopefully that brief overview gives listeners some insight into the identity paradox part of the podcast title. Uh, and now I'm just going to give a brief note on the pharmacon portion of the title. Although, um, the term pharmacon dates back to antiquity, my take on the term is actually informed by the work of Jacques Derrida, who also takes on Kant, Hegel, Husserl, and Heidegger uh, in his works. Uh, but before getting into Derrida's background and philosophy, I briefly want to demonstrate to our listeners that the connections I'm drawing and articulating the reasoning behind this podcast title is not arbitrary. And neither are the philosophical connections I'm drawing between figures like Husserl, Adorno, and Derrida. In other words, I'm not simply dropping names of intellectual figures or my intellectual interests here in, in, into a pot and just stirring them. There's, there are legitimate connections here between these, uh, these figures, these theorists, these philosophers. And I just want to simply highlight this fact. So I'd like to quote from Elizabeth Portela Pereira's essay, The Presence of the Present, Derrida, Adorno, and the Autonomy of Philosophy. In Voice and Phenomena, Jacques Derrida conducts a critique of Husserlian phenomenology, taking the opportunity to articulate crucial concepts for a theory of deconstruction in the interests of Husserl's premises. His critique of Husserl is, uh, you're going to have to help me with this one, Rob, synecdotic? Exactly. Okay, yep. Thanks. Insofar as it works to facilitate a much broader critique, indeed, a critique as broad as the tradition of Western philosophy itself. In Against Epistemology, Theodore Adorno similarly takes up a critique of Husserlian phenomenology toward a broader critique of the history of philosophy. Several theorists have, for this occasion among others, taken to drawing comparisons between Derrida and Adorno. Given that a critique of Husserlian phenomenology is among either's earliest works, the need for a comparative analysis seems to follow. Further, that either represents a pivotal figure in distinct traditions, the former being the proverbial patriarch of deconstruction and the latter a notable member of the first generation of the Frankfurt School, suggests that a comparative analysis of their works where the overlap is most overt yields rather important insights. The occasion of their respective critiques of Husserl forms the basis of my analysis here. These critiques represent a kind of microcosm from which one can extrapolate, extrapolate broader methodological tendencies in deconstruction and critical theory. To address contemporary claims made about the possibility of a deconstructive politics and its relation 
in its relation to the future of critical theory, it is worthwhile to consider the substantial body of literature devoted to the very comparison I take as my starting point and the political implications therein. A review of such literature reveals critical assumptions present in what is meant by the term politics in contemporary theory. More importantly, this restricted sense of what is meant by politics reveals presumptions concerning the nature of philosophy and its relation to social critique. And again, that's from Elizabeth Portella Perreras, The Presence of the Present, Derrida, Adorno, and the Autonomy of Philosophy. So hopefully some of these connections become or are becoming apparent to our listeners. Uh, now, I know we covered a lot of really dense material today. So perhaps it's best to make this a two-part introduction or introductory episode and save the Derrida Pharmacon section for part two. What do you think, Rob? I think that's the only plan, right? We have covered a lot <laughs> of information today and we're going to have to cover a lot in our Derrida episode as well. Yes. So I say we split it up. Yes, I, I completely agree. That's a great idea, Rob. Thank you. And uh, we don't want to put our listeners through the, and this is not Adrian's fault. It's my fault. I was being a bad host. Uh, the 90 minute podcast episodes. I know that 90 minutes is a lot of time to dedicate to a podcast. Most of us don't drive home. 90 minute commutes. So uh, we're going to try to keep this to 60 minutes uh, or slightly under going forward. So hopefully this is, I haven't checked the time, but hopefully that fits those uh, newfound constraints that we're putting upon ourselves in the tradition of uh, not being deconstructionists or not being not <laughs> meditarians. Anyway, uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on SoundCloud where the recordings are currently available. And uh, check out the uh, website, theidentityparadox.com for episode notes. And until we uh, drop part two, probably uh, in a couple of days after this one, um, we'll see you until then. So thanks for listening, listeners. And thanks for joining us today, Rob. I expect you to be here for part two on the Pharmacon Dairy Dust stuff since that's, that's your wheelhouse. We'll be talking about- <laughs> Wait, yeah. No, I teach yeah. that essay all the time. Yeah, yep. Pl Plato's Pharmacy, really? Yep. Oh, that's going to be fun. So maybe I'll just let you run that one. Uh, <laughs> we'll see, yeah. yeah. We'll but, flip uh, a coin on the day of. How about yeah, that? I don't right. trust your coins. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Bitcoin don't count. So uh, yeah. <laughs> Until then, listeners, see ya. Bye. Later. Ciao. Thank you, Rob. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe to uh, the podcast if you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks again.